0: That's a pen method.
1: Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and we are at episode number 90, our 90th episode of Shut Up and Wrestle, and it's one that I'm very excited about because I have a very special guest this week, someone whose work I've admired for a very long time, and I know that many of you have as well. I am talking about one of the greatest ring announcers of all time, Gary Michael Capetta. Whether you know him from his work in the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, in the American Wrestling Association, or in World Championship Wrestling, you definitely remember him. And if you're like me, you cherished what he brought to the ring, and that is what he's going to be talking about this week on the show, among many other things. We'll get to that in just a second. A couple of quick items that I wanted to get to first. First, I wanted to give you a quick update on Irresistible Force, The Life and Times of Gorilla Monsoon, because I just completed what I planned to be, the final interview for the book. I had thought that my interview period was complete. I was moving on to the writing phase, but I had one that I just could not pass up, and it was the great cowboy Bill Watts himself. Bill Watts, who was a tag team partner of Gorilla Monsoon back in the 1960s, who shared locker rooms with him, who shared cars with him, who was on the road with him, and who wrestled him, went to a 20-minute draw once at Madison Square Garden, and basically was around during those early years of Gino's career in the early days of the WWWF. And thanks to my great friend, Keith Elliott Greenberg, I was able to connect with the cowboy, who really doesn't do a whole lot of interviews these days. I would not expect to see him as an upcoming guest on this podcast, for those that may be holding out hope. Uh, he really doesn't do that kind of stuff anymore, but he was willing to make an exception for this book and for his great old friend of the past, Gino Morella, Gorilla Monsoon, and so I thank him for that, and I thank Keith for making it possible. I also wanted to mention this week an item, and I want to be clear on this. This may sound like a commercial. This is not a paid endorsement. This is something that I discovered that I was so bowled over by, uh, a book, that I wanted to tell all of you about it. Now, I was researching an article for Inside the Ropes magazine that I did on some of the famous old venues of wrestling. And uh, by the way, that's going to be in issue number 38, which is available now of Inside the Ropes magazine. But one of those arenas is the Sunnyside Garden, which was an old building, an old boxing club, as they used to call it, in Queens, in New York, my hometown. And I had heard a lot about it as a kid. My grandfather was a Golden Gloves boxing trainer and coach, spent a lot of time at the Sunnyside Garden. But in the process of researching the garden, researching that particular arena, I came across a book. It's called Wrestling at Sunnyside Garden Arena, and it's a photo book. It was put together by a photographer named Arthur Nager, who happened to be photographing ringside the afternoon of November 27th, 1971, at the Sunnyside Garden, and The results of that photography make up the contents of this book. Arthur apparently, you know, 50 years later was going through old black and white negatives and he discovered the photos from that day and they are an absolute snapshot in time. He put them together into this excellent photo book, a glossy black and white photo book that really takes you back to a different era, a different era in New York, a different era in pro wrestling. It is one afternoon of a WWF card at this small 2,000-seat arena in Queens, which was really more well-known for boxing than wrestling. And the results are beautiful. I can't recommend it enough. The grittiness, just the, the uh, non-camera readiness of the fans. You'll see a diverse crowd, diverse in race, diverse in class, diverse in age all walks of life, you will see wrestling of a different kind that you just don't see anymore. And as you page through this book, you almost can smell the the haze of, of cigarette smoke and cigar smoke hanging over the ring and just feel the heat beating down on you from the lights. It's very real. It's very gritty. And for people that long for those old days, whether you lived through it or You wonder what it was like, like me, and you look for that window into the past. This book is a great window into the past. Uh, Again, the the book is called Wrestling at Sunnyside Garden Arena by Arthur Nager, who is a photographer. And if you're interested in picking up a copy of the book, I would direct you to where I got a copy of the book. The website is sunnysidegardenwrestling.com. And I will post This link on the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group as well. But again, cannot recommend this book enough. Uh, If you are a fan of the old school WWF territorial wrestling in general, or just New York in the 70s, I encourage you to pick up this book. Now, without further ado, let's get to this episode number 90 interview with Gary Michael Capetta, who I first made a reconnection with Thanks to the Gorilla Monsoon book, because as you will read in the book once it comes out, Gino was very instrumental in getting Gary's career off the ground. In fact, he was the man who opened the door for him and brought him into the business of professional wrestling. And he talks a little bit about that in this interview, but focuses on a whole lot of other things, his time in WCW, his time in the early days of Vince's WWF his time in the AWA, and just his thoughts on ring announcing in general, and who are some of the greatest to do it, and what it really takes to be a great ring announcer. All that and more in this week's conversation, which I am going to take you to right now. Okay, so it's my pleasure this week on Shut Up and Wrestle to bring someone to the show who is, in my opinion, and I know the opinion of many others, one of the greatest wrestling ring announcers of all time. He is known to different generations in different ways. There are many fans who may remember his work in WCW in the 1990s. There are definitely older fans who remember him fondly from his years in the World Wrestling Federation and the World Wide Wrestling Federation in the late 70s and early 80s, really being one of the faces and voices of wrestling in that time period. He's also the author of one of the early wrestling biographies at the beginning of this whole boom of wrestling books, uh, Body Slams, Memoirs of a Wrestling Pitchman. Of course, you figured it out by now. I am talking about Gary Michael Capetta. Gary, thank you so much for coming to Shut Up and Wrestle.
0: No problem. Thank you uh, for inviting me, Brian. I appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. And we go way back as we were talking about the last time we talked. And actually, I, I should say, for people that listen to this show, they're they're keeping up on the book that I'm writing, Irresistible Force. And so I have mentioned that I previously talked to you for that book, specifically about your your memories of Gino and, and how instrumental he was in getting your career started.
0: Yeah, if it wasn't for... Uh... Gorilla Monsoon. I would never have been a ring announcer uh, because it wasn't something I had sought out. Um, it was just a matter of happenstance.
1: Well, you know the funny thing is, and like I said to you before, I don't. You know, we. I'm not going to make the whole show about Gorilla because certainly I talk about him enough on here. But you hear that about him with so many people that he helped. I mean, he he, he seemed to have been a benevolent force in a business that is certainly uh, full of malevolent forces <laughs> he, he was he was the opposite of that.
0: Yeah, but he would also uh, he was a, he was a really good businessman. So um, when he approached me to um, announce his, his, Vince Vince McMahon senior had cut up his territory into smaller pieces. And he had given his minority partners sections of the WWWF to promote. So Monsoon had New Jersey, Eastern Pennsylvania, Delaware. Um, so he was running his own shows. And, um, when I started announcing, I didn't know that he was a, um, he, he was an executive. I didn't know that I just knew him as a wrestler um so i also didn't know that he was the he was the producer of the wwwf tv the weekly television show my point in prefacing what i'm going to say is that he was also a good business person so he knew um after i had been working with him um, and learning the the nuances of being a, a ring announcer after two years, um, he knew that bringing me on TV would only magnify his towns because now his ring announcer was the ring announcer. I was the ring announcer for the A show um, of Championship Wrestling. So folks saw me every week. So now when they would go to, high school or a a college gymnasium or an armory or um, a convention hall down at the shore or wherever that monsoon promoted they were seeing the tv announcer so there you know he he yes in the very beginning he saw something in me and uh and picked me up and started using me Um, and at that time and in just those areas and mostly it was new jersey um, I was announcing on an average of three times a week. I mean, it's it's an amazing amount of times for one promotion. Well, we were the only promotion, right? So, um, so yeah. And there was, as time went on, a method to his madness to enhance his own piece of the pie by having a very recognizable figure leading his his own shows
1: right and in those days those were the days where they were doing tv was what every three weeks is that how it was
0: yeah the the a show was every third tuesday um, when i started it, it was in philadelphia and the b show was every three weeks in hamburg on a wednesday so consecutive nights So a
1: lot of the other work you'd be doing would be the house shows, with the idea being that you were the TV announcer and now people were getting to see you live at whatever their local venue was.
0: That's correct. Yep.
1: Now I have to ask, and this isn't about you, but it's just because I've been watching a lot of, they've posted a lot of uh, WWF championship wrestling episodes recently on Peacock from about 1980, 81 period. And so top of mind talking about ring announcers I have in my head is Joe McHugh. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, and I'm sorry if you've been asked this before, but there's not a lot of people that talk about him and I, you never hear a lot said about him. What, what did you have interactions with him? What was he like?
0: Um, Our paths only crossed one time and it was uh, very brief. Um, They had moved the Philadelphia weekly, uh tv show from um uh taping in philadelphia they moved it to allentown and that's where joe lived and that's why in 1980 he's the ring announcer for the a show and they moved me to hamburg so i became the ring announcer for all-star wrestling and it was just a matter of uh, he was an older man he didn't drive um i believe his daughter would drive him to the shows So it was just more convenient for him um, to announce, not in Hamburg anymore, but in Allentown. Um, And one night they didn't, for whatever reason, they didn't think he was going to be able to be there. So they uh, asked me to come to Allentown. Um, So they wanted me to work two consecutive nights. And so I, I went and before the show started, he arrived. He was there. And that's all that I know. And it was just a matter of, hey, um, hey, Joe, how are you? Nice to meet you. And then I went home. Um, Ring announcers usually don't know each other, at least back then, because there was never a need for two ring announcers at one place. Um, The exception would have been um, I knew Howard Finkel, uh, but his role was um, more than a ring announcer because he worked in the office there were reasons for him to be at some of the shows in another capacity so while i was the ring announcer he was doing other things for uh for his office role usually that would have been at the meadowlands um yeah so i didn't really know joe McHugh. it was just hey how are you nice to meet you and moving on
1: and howard actually was somebody that i worked with pretty closely when I was at WWE. Cause like you said, he was an office guy. He wasn't just a ring announcer. He's actually, he actually was one of the first Titan sports hires, you know, of, of Vince's own company separate from his father's. And, um, by the time I got there in 2000, he was, he was already actually starting to, they were actually starting to phase him out as an announcer a bit. And he was focusing more on office stuff, but, um, very, very nice man, very knowledgeable man. But also from the things that you've written and things that I know, it seemed to me like what happened was, and this seems to be exactly what happened, he was kind of Vince's ring announcer, you were kind of Gorilla's ring announcer, and sort of in the in the power play or whatever that went on, it became Howard over you. Is that kind of like what happened?
0: Yeah, and... Um... I didn't understand the whole scenario back when it was happening. Um, I, I did know that Vinny, uh, he didn't like me. So, I mean, I worked with them for 11 years and I did their TV for eight years, eight of those 11 years. Um, so I would see him every third, first it was Tuesday. And then when I was moved to the other show every third Wednesday. So you know, we had a relationship in passing um, and um, I think Howard began re-announcing a year or two after I started um, you know, and, and we had a great, very cordial relationship, Howard and I. Howard was a terrific guy. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't understand the politics at the time. I wasn't privy to what was going on behind the scenes. I didn't, uh, it wasn't until it happened that I realized that Monsoon's ownership had been taken from him. And um, I didn't realize that I was seen as being on Monsoon's team. Um, but I, I, now that I look back at, at the situation, I, I think that was the case. I, I might be wrong. And I, I'm going to check with you as we go through some of these things. You being the historian, you would you've examined many territories and uh, that I'm not aware of, but I think at 23 years old, I was probably the youngest. Um, uh, full-time TV ring announcer. Um, I mean, I that's,
1: don't... yeah, that's safe to assume at that age. Also, because back then, I mean, look, we all know now very often in order to be on TV and wrestling you know, everybody, it's like they're less interested in your actual talent and skill, and they're more interested in your appearance. So now all the ring announcers are very young and youthful and good looking. And maybe I'm being unfair to some of the more talented ones. But but back in those days, it seemed like and this is why I say this, because you would have stood out as a very young person. They were very grizzled. A lot of ring announcers, they were kind of they were older guys, middle aged or above. Who really and a lot of times their delivery and there are great exceptions obviously uh, was very kind of subdued or very mechanical and it, and it, and it didn't seem like there was a lot of thought put in, put into the work that they did and that's why the people who did seem like they genuinely cared about it I think really really stood out so and that's just my opinion though
0: um, I think that's because they were political appointments I think that's because at a local show. They very often would use the local radio DJ, and they would get free advertisement of the guy on the air saying where he was going to be that Thursday night or that that Saturday night. And others, I think, were politically appointed to please the state athletic commission. Um, yeah, and and I think the way uh, management thought of it was, it's you know, it's one night. Um, nobody's going to see this anyway, you know, except for the 2,500 people that are going to attend, um, and it's going to make so-and-so happy and it's not going to hurt our product. It's not going to, I mean, it didn't enhance their product either, but it wasn't going to, to hurt. Um, for instance, in the state of Pennsylvania, where I did all of my TV work for WWF, um, I actually shouldn't have been allowed to announce in Pennsylvania because part of their state athletic commission rule was that you needed to reside in the state to work in the state. And I resided in New Jersey. So the way they got around that was they would always have another announcer um, that the McMahons also paid, even if they didn't use him. All the, all the Athletic Commission cared about was that the guy got his payday. So, right. And at the Spectrum, there would be another announcer that would work. And um, I would give him which matches, like the three matches that he was going to announce that night. And um, it, it just made everybody happy. So I, I think for different reasons, they were political um, appointments
1: there were all these dances that they would have to do with the state athletic commissions back then. It's really interesting to me because now, and, and even still today, there's still um, dealings with athletic commissions, but now where it's viewed so much as entertainment back then, they, you know, obviously it still was entertainment, but they weren't going to come out and say that. So they had to kind of go through these motions. I know a lot of times I've spoken to referees from that period too, how, you had the commission referees and then you, so, you know, you had to sort of play games with them and there were certain people you could use and maybe they weren't smart enough to the business and you'd have to work almost like you were working around them. So it it just seems like back then I'm not justifying what, what Vince did when he went before the, you know, the athletic commissions and said, this is all entertainment and we don't want to be beholden to the athletic commissions. But at the same time, I understand why there would be frustration sometimes in having to deal with with them.
0: Yeah. And, and mostly it was for the, their prominent events, something that was going to be televised, um, a Meadowland show, um, a Philadelphia spectrum show, um, in, in my world. Um, but other than that, um, yeah, I mean, it was so many of the answers to so many of these questions comes down to, money. So it was about getting their their personnel paid.
1: Now I know, you know, from from reading your book and from when we've talked before, one of the things that I think was interesting about you and especially in the WWF years, I don't know if this well, I guess it did in the WCW years too, is that wrestlers would interact with you. Wrestlers would it's almost like in a way, and I'm going to be careful how I say it, um You sometimes ring announcers can become a character on the show or viewed as part of the show. And the reason I bring it up is I wanted to ask how you feel about, you know, there's this thing in wrestling about don't put yourself over and this kind of thing. And people put you in your place if you're somebody who's putting yourself over, who's not supposed to. So where's the line there for people that are not wrestlers between contributing to the show and making it about yourself when it shouldn't be about yourself?
0: Never initiate it, Mm -hmm. only react to it. I think that's the key. Um, Everything that you do in the ring should be logical and common sense and make sense. So I would never initiate any interaction between myself and a wrestler, but I would react. So I would run away from George Steele after the first time... We had our, uh, he, uh, he on TV, he bear hugged me from behind and sacked me and I ran away from him. And then for the next eight years, I continued to run away from him, whether it was a house show or TV show or, or whatever, but I wouldn't run away from him unless he charged at me. Um, So when Jimmy Stuka started to undress me, I, I reacting, I'm trying to get away. Um, I would never stand up to a wrestler. That would be foolish. Um, so yeah, I mean, so I was accommodating. <laughs> you can look at it that way. I was accommodating to what the wrestlers wanted, and um, they would never stick their fist in the air and put it to my face unless they knew I was going to, um, I, I, I was going to veer back and and and, and backpedal. Um, so, yeah, I, I was doing what they wanted me to do. Never initiate is the answer to the, the bottom line answer to the question. Which makes
1: total sense because, you know, under the circumstances, you, you have to react. You, you can't not react because it's almost like if you, if you don't react you're almost you're hurting the the wrestler or you're you're damaging what they're trying to do and you're exposing things too like when i i wrote my book about my previous book about the original chic now there was somebody who was known to be completely unpredictable he would come to the ring you didn't know what he was going to do who he was going to take a swing at maybe a referee maybe a ring announcer maybe a photographer and i talked to some photographers who said backstage they're talking to him and like a totally normal human being but the minute they were out there they knew that they had to go along with whatever he was doing so if he's charging at you you can't just laugh and stand there because i mean you'll probably never work again if you do that you have to run away from him you have to react in some way so you know you you're being put in that spot like you said and it's not like you're trying to get a rise out of them. You're you're trying to sell whatever it is that they're doing.
0: Yes. I mean, um, it's interesting to me when I do conventions now and I have an opportunity to chat with the fellas that I, the wrestlers that I um, introduced. Um, two that come to mind, was, uh, Ken, I was talking to Ken Patera um, earlier this summer and then just uh, last weekend with uh, Jimmy Valiant. And um, I'm always struck by how much they can tell me about what I did, how I'm studying them. I'm watching them. They're the guys that are selling the tickets, but these fellas are so astute with the entire wrestling scene that they knew how to best use me. And, they knew that because I'm short, I made everyone else look larger because I'm very serious looking. I made everyone else look crazier and they began to trust my natural instincts. Um, And I would have never guessed that they would have even noticed me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it just would never have um, crossed my mind. Um, But you can be sure that if, I didn't react the way I should have reacted, which would have been whatever made sense, that they wouldn't have tried to um, bring me in to uh, what was going on a second time. They wouldn't have done it a second time.
1: Right, because I can only imagine that that, that must have happened at times where they tried something with somebody who just was kind of clueless or whatever, or, or just wanted no part of it. And then they said, you know what? I'm never going to do that with that guy again because it just looks terrible. And I don't, you know, I'm just, he's just not the person to do that with.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And my guess with Sheik would be um, he would just pound it on the guy.
1: I think you're right. Actually, the guys that I spoke to, every one of them said that, that if they didn't sell it, that he was going to do something that would make them do that. And, And in his case... That wouldn't that would include potentially even cutting them. I mean, he was known to do that as insane as that sounds, to somebody who didn't even know that it had been done, a referee or whoever. And of course, you know, today he'd probably be arrested for doing that. but back then that was the wrestling business. But um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that whole, well, I, I wanted to backtrack a little bit because it's important to me, a lot of the people that I have on here, They got into the business to one degree or another because they were fans. And I know you had been a fan for years before uh, you actually got into the business, right? So, I mean, like people like San Martino and Monsoon and those guys were already kind of larger than life to you even before you ever set foot
0: in a ring. Yes. Um, When I was uh, in elementary school, I started watching wrestling. Um, The late night show in New York on a Saturday night at midnight when I probably shouldn't have been up. Um, And, um, yeah, I was at the first time that I came across it. um, I thought it was really bizarre. I mean, to to my elementary school mind, I'm looking at these two. And and I talk about this in my stage show. um, I'm looking at these two sweaty, big individuals scantily clad in a, a, a small lit space with all of these people that looked normal to me sitting and watching and reacting to what they're doing. And um, I thought it was obscene. I didn't think I, w- I should have been watching this. And um, uh, the next time I, that I tuned in, there were women doing this in bathing suits for my <laughs> mind that's what I saw right. and then another time that I snuck out to watch it there were midgets and when I saw that I'm just saying wow I, I can't miss this this is and and that was a, a time and we're talking about the 60s where you didn't go to school and talk about it you didn't go to school and say I'm a wrestling fan that was something that you'd be ridiculed for So uh, you sort of like kept it to yourself. It was, you know, really seedy, you know, when you think about it. um, And I had a cousin who was also a fan. And so when I was my my parents wanted nothing to do with it, um, but they would drop us off to uh, a wrestling show, my cousin and I. And, uh, you know, and then they would pick us up at the end of the night, uh, which would never happen today either. Um, true yeah because I mean we're talking about the heart of Patterson New Jersey and Newark New Jersey and, you know at these armories so um and then my brother brought me a couple times and um, yeah and, and once I went and got the entire experience uh, I, I mean I was 110 percent sold and I think that's important
1: uh, for people that are younger fans or who came along later and by younger I mean even you know my age I don't even mean people that just started watching the idea it's important to remember that there was a time where yes wrestling was big business and they had a solid passionate fan base that was going to pay money and they were doing all right I don't want to feed into this myth that You know, before Hulk Hogan, there was, you know, wrestling was just in tiny little in the back of a restaurant somewhere. And, you know, it wasn't, but it was much more underground. It was much more out of the mainstream. So they had their audience. They had you would get 22,000 people that would fill up Madison Square Garden and the Felt Forum every month. But still, it would remain this underground thing. The shows would be on often at very unusual times. They didn't always have the best time slots. It was not a mainstream thing. And I think that's something that has really changed over time, even though now I don't think it's as mainstream as it used to be. It's still more mainstream now. I would venture to guess than it was when you were watching it as a kid.
0: Yeah. You would, uh, who wants to be ridiculed? I mean, as a kid, you you know, when you go to school, um, but But the the kids that were football fans, basketball fans, baseball fans, I mean, they you would be held up in ridicule because, quote, unquote, you think that fake stuff is real. And so you 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 were made to feel like a total idiot. Um, But all the way when my book came out in uh, 2000 and then I started touring to promote the book. Which would have been two thousand one, two thousand two. I was looking for a sponsor um, because I was on the road and I was going from uh, Barnes and Noble to Barnes and Noble and Books a Million and uh, Borders Books at the time and independent bookstores. So I needed help in to help underwrite what I was doing in two ways: by um, transportation and hotels. So I reached out to rental car agencies, the corporate headquarters, and I reached out to um, hotel chain corporate headquarters to try to get them to underwrite, just give me a free car, give me free night stay, and I'll promote, you know, the product, you know, the Avis or Hertz or Hilton or whatever. And they all laughed at me, like, and, and the answer was, our customers aren't wrestling fans. <laughs> now, this is in two thousand one and two thousand two, yeah. where you were considered to be like off your rocker, hillbilly from the hills of somewhere, you know, somewhere where we don't live. And, right. and yes, yeah, so, I mean, it, 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 we're talking about the nineteen sixties, and I and now I'm I'm witnessing this forty years later. Um, yeah, it was it was very common. So, so you, didn't, you didn't publicize that you were a fan. You right. kept it to yourself.
1: Yeah, there, there was that struggle. I, I remember even, it's an interesting thing because even when I later worked for the company and I was working on the magazine, so we were very conscious of advertisers. We were trying to get advertisers in the magazine. And I remember I was very naive because I was in my 20s. I didn't know a lot about the business. I was a writer and editor, but I didn't know about the business side of it. And they would sit me down and go, look, it doesn't matter how many issues we sell. We're not going to get car advertisers. We're not going to get prestige kind of liquor advertisers, the big money things. We're just not because at that time, I don't know if it's changed. Maybe it has. I don't watch the commercials that closely in the age of DVR. But, you know, at that time, they couldn't even get commercials and sponsors like that for the TV shows. Even though the TV shows were sometimes leading the night in ratings, it was almost like it was more than just the numbers. It was a certain amount of prestige or lack of prestige so that, let's say, in the days of USA Network when they they don't do this anymore, but they would preempt Monday Night Raw for the US Open or the Westminster Dog Show. That was the infamous one. And every time, every year to a T, the ratings would would drop when they would do that but the network didn't care because it had more prestige than wrestling they could attract big money sponsors that wrestling could not no matter whether it was successful or not it, there was another intangible factor like you said people just held their nose and they didn't want to be associated
0: with it <laughs> yeah it was more like um how it would af- how it would reflect on um on the on those corporate entities whether it be Coca-Cola or Hertz a car or yeah it, it was uh it was interesting but we uh,
1: we got by you know certainly did and and I wanted to talk about something that that we were just briefly touching on before which I think is another interesting thing to me and so, something that's changed so much in wrestling how you were saying how the wrestlers would sometimes gravitate to you because they could tell that you know they could do something and it would be received the right way or be or and fans would take notice of you partly because you seemed so different from everyone else. You know, you didn't look crazy. You didn't look like, like a, you know, you weren't a wrestler. And I think there was this approach to wrestling in those days, which I feel like is gone, where they would do that very often to accentuate the wrestlers. So like, for example, everyone other than the wrestlers were portrayed as very normal kind of people. They weren't really characters, quote unquote, So from the announcers to the referees to whoever the authority figure was, and this goes across territories, would be a very sort of like down-to-earth kind of voice of reason type of person. And it would accentuate how insane and out of control the wrestlers were. And I think that wrestling lost something when everyone on the show just became a character uh, to one degree or another. So you have... The, the evil authority figure. You have the referees who are almost like characters in the show. You have the announcers. And I know, and I love having a heel and a babyface announcer, but I feel like that's almost like where it started, where the announcers started becoming characters in the show. And I feel like sometimes it takes something away from the wrestlers when that happens.
0: Um, yeah, I, you know, absolutely. All, the most that I could do with what my role was was to enhance the already established aura of the wrestlers, um, and you know, and and I did that to the best of my ability um, as Gary Michael Capetta. You know, there's there's not it was it was just um, I, I never I never put in a whole lot of thought into things. Um, I did, for instance, wear a carnation boutonniere and I wore. Um, a bow tie often, and I did use my middle name, and yeah, that was to set myself apart. But it was very subtle. Uh, what I actually did in my performance was, um, especially back in the WWF days, was 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 more um, subtle. If you if you look at tape from uh, WWF and then my AWA days, and then wcw you'll it, it's not all the same there's mm-hmm. there um there was a an evolution of of how i announced um i i i uh was very um subdued comparatively in the wwf days then a little more over the top in awa days and then i brought it back halfway when i was with wcw
1: and I have to say, um, partly because of my age, but just when I happened to start watching wrestling, you know, because I was a little older than a lot of kids when I started watching. I was already, I don't know, I guess in seventh grade. And and I was already at the age where most kids, a lot of kids were starting to move on from wrestling and I was just starting to get into it. But I, But I first saw you in WCW and of course later. I discovered everything else that you'd done and I went back to it. And that's part of that was because of of WWF's Coliseum home videos where they would have flashback matches and things on there. But I always I always enjoyed what you did in WCW because and it's interesting to hear you describe it as sort of like halfway, because I felt like, and I'm sorry if I've misinterpreted and this wasn't what you were going for, but it almost seemed like a modern take on the classic kind of old school wrestling ring announcer delivery and approach, but, but not in a way that seems stale or antiquated. It almost just, but it's, but like sort of a nod to it in a way.
0: Hmm, That's interesting. I I never thought of it that way. Um, What actually happened was when I started to work with Vern Gagne on his ESPN show, um, things were not going well for the show Hmm. And he was getting blowback from uh, uh, the network, from ESPN. And he came over to me and he said, You got to pep it up. I want, I want, he didn't say more broad, but that's what he meant, you know? And, and I did. It was the only time in my 50 year career that anyone, any promoter came over to me to give me any guidance about how to announce i've never been yeah i've never been told gee that was great i've never been told boy that was horrible i just did my my thing and i knew that it was it worked because they kept on asking me back i mean that's pretty much how it happened so when i say i brought it back yeah i brought it and i i did not like what i was doing or how i was doing what i was doing when i worked awa for Vern um because it just it was not natural. It didn't feel right. But when I started to announce, as crazy as this sounds, um, I, everybody, whether you're a wrestler or a referee or an announcer or a singer or a, a comedian, you base what you do when you start out on what you enjoyed. So on, on certain figures. Um, and then eventually you make it your own so there were there were two people in particular uh jimmy lennon senior ah, yes because he was very classy he uh was very well spoken he was very serious and friendly bob freed i was hoping that name would come up who uh is kind of a large oafish sloppily dressed <laughs> poorly spoken guy Perfect ring announcer answer, right? So you're yeah. So you're saying to yourself, Gary, like you know why? Like the reason is because he was real. He was real. I I I don't believe that my success as an announcer and my longevity for this many decades has anything more to do than my connection with the fans. Um, I certainly do not have the best voice, and never did. Um I, I understood and, and was a good utility kind of player, and especially for live events. Um, I, I always believed that um, I was most valuable when the cameras weren't rolling, when we needed to communicate things to the to the um, audience at large. Um, because we they needed more of an explanation when early on in early TV days today they just the, the the fans just mug for the cameras but there were um, di- different techniques that I would use um, or if it was a, a non televised event and the main event wasn't going to be there or someone who had been advertised that was high in the card I needed to explain to the folks why why he wasn't going to be there um, I guess the most infamous time that that happened when was flair uh was fired from WCW so that that video has been seen (laughs) millions and millions of times yes um
1: I think it was Great American Bash 91 was, was the event where he was supposed to defend the title and then they wound up instead having a tournament to to crown the new champion or something like that and you wound up with the entire
0: night people chanting we want flair and and that night he was supposed to headline so he wasn't there for that live event And people were throwing things at me and, um, and, um, yeah, and there's a certain way to handle that. And I would know how to handle that. Um, so, uh, I mean, people say, Oh, Gary, that, that must've been so horrible. It's like, no, I lived for that kind of a moment that, that allowed me to pull some, some tricks out of my out of my bag to use that I never got an opportunity to use. Um like what? What would you do? Um well more times than not when something like that was to happen, I would get, especially when I was with WCW, I would get a corporate guy to have a script all written out for me and uh, you know, to tell me exactly what I needed to say. And I would always say I would read through it as it's standing there and I would say, "Okay, all that information will be relayed to the to the folks. But I'm not reading this. This isn't Gary Michael Capet. Um, This isn't what he would say. This isn't even this is this would be great for a press release, but not to deliver live to, to, you know, to the folks. Right. Um, I, I think the main thing is not to try to sugarcoat it at all to through your facial expressions and through your body language to let the folks know I agree this sucks this is bad news and after announcing the circumstance and with the the, the core the kernel of the information to say nothing and let them boo let them get it out Let them voice their opinion and stand there and sort of solemnly nod your head. Yes, I agree. Mm. And then when it's possible, and and for that (laughs) flair announcement, it wasn't possible (laughs) because they didn't didn't have anything better to replace it. No. um, To tell them what they were going to see instead of the main event that they thought they were going to see and to make them feel that what they're going to see is even gonna be greater than what they bought their tickets to see. And uh, and then we ordinarily would offer them a refund if they went to the box office by the end of the first match. We did this in Baltimore um, often. And then in intermission time, I would go to the promoter and I would ask how many refunds there were. And I would just try to, to gauge Compared to the last time I did it, were there more, were there less? And, you know, just to see how successful I was with the announcement. But of course, you know, it's baked in. People have already have their babysitters and they already paid their parking. And they weren't going, you know. Right.
1: It would take a lot.
0: But yeah,
1: there is an art to these things. And I'm glad to hear you talk about it. I'm also glad with some of the names you mentioned, because, you know, when I was talking about the ring announcers of the past, and I said there were some great, great exceptions Jimmy Lennon Senior is probably the greatest of them all, and I feel like something that bothers me when they do nowadays. Everybody loves to rank everything. You know, the the greatest rankings of all time is just it's like everybody's hobby. The Mount Rushmores. They, right? Everything's <laughs> a Mount Rushmore, and this and that. And when they do, when they do the ring announcers, they don't they don't talk about him. And I understand it was a very long time ago. Look, I mean, I I know that, and I, I feel like I know. I remember a little bit more about him because my grandfather was involved in boxing. And my grandfather, you know, had a had a big knowledge of boxing and he knew Jimmy Lennon Senior as a boxing announcer, you know, on the West Coast and other places. And so I knew, but I feel like, you know, you're he's he may have been the greatest wrestling ring announcer there ever was, or at least that we have audio and video proof of. And he's left out of 90% of those so-called Rush
0: Mount Rushmore uh, conversations. Yeah. Because anyone that's uh, commenting on that today had never seen his work. Right. Especially on a regular basis.
1: Right. And, and there's, you know, and I understand that, like I said, I'm, I'm not, you know, I haven't, I'm not a hundred years old. And then people are like, how do you, how do you know about this stuff? Well, <laughs> if you have the curiosity, you know, it's, it, we're living in a time where it's easier than ever to find out, you know, have the intellectual curiosity. I've never set foot in the Olympic auditorium in my life. Um, you know, I was born in 1974. I started watching wrestling in 1987. I have not seen and heard it all, but I took an interest to find out. So anyway, that that's another pet peeve of mine. But Jimmy Lennon, really, I mean, uh, just
0: a class act all the way, like you said. So you were born the year that I started announcing. So I <laughs> Sorry. look at you Sorry. and that's, that's the... <laughs> That's the the length, you know, the longevity of. Because I I was out announcing this summer. I mean, I still. That's great. You know, obviously, I'm. Uh, it's 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 far and few between, but I still do go out and do guest announcing. And you know, talking about
1: the WCW years, I I wanted to ask about this, and I don't, I can't remember if they ever did this to you. Uh, it might have been with other or what era this happened in, but something. That would drive me nuts and i don't i can't ever remember any other company doing this they would they went through a period in wcw where and it seemed very intentional they would have the tv broadcasters talk over the ring announcer and i it was almost like they were saying the ring announcer is just there for the live fans you know he doesn't need to be heard by the tv audience and but even if you take that philosophy which i think is ridiculous it, it was so distracting because you could still hear the ring announcer in the ring and, and the T, te- you know, Jim Ross or whoever it was, or Tony Schiavone. And
0: they're just talking over the guy. I mean, do you that know anything about with, why that happened? Oh, I, I know everything about why that happened. <laughs> um, it was uh, an Eric Bischoff decision. Ah. Um, while I was still there uh, the first TV that he oversaw, he came up to me and, and said, I'd like for you to speed up your introduction." And he didn't tell me why. And that was why he he um, he never saw or understood the value of a ring announcer unless they had some connection with Hollywood. So he yeah, he didn't he didn't understand. He didn't appreciate my contributions. He didn't even begin to know what my contributions were. And that's you know, that's just his take on things. You know, I had a feeling that it was a
1: Bischoff thing, and that that confirms the the gut instinct that I had. And I remember, even as a fan at the time, you know, whatever it was in college or whatever, I I do remember thinking, God, what a stupid thing to do! It's like they're just they're just saying uh, the ring announcer is not necessary, or the ring announcer is an afterthought. And then I started thinking, why even bother having the guy out there? You could just have the TV announcers tell as some wrestling territories would do, just have the TV announcer tell the fans watching on TV, if that's all you care about, who these people are. Why even bother having this guy in the ring if you're going to do that to him? Out of curiosity now, because I know you you had worked for Vern Gagne, did you cross paths with Eric there before WCW?
0: No, no, I never, uh, I don't know which, I don't know the years that he worked with Vern To my understanding, wasn't it uh, just in the office.
1: Yes, it was. It was just in the office, and I don't know what the exact dates were of when you went from the AWA to WCW, because I know he started with the. He might have been just starting with the AWA, kind of in their dying days, really at the very end in the last couple of years.
0: The bulk of my work with the AWA was in '85, and then he he wasn't there yet. Yeah. Yeah. And then he brought me back for two pay per views um, Super Clash 3, I think it was, and um, uh, oh, the rock and wrestling show. Wrestle Rock. Wrestle Rock at uh, <laughs> the Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome in Minneapolis. Right. Uh, and I, as far as I know, I didn't meet Eric at those. Events. Yeah. I don't think he was there yet. And that Wrestle Rock is where they had the wrestlers do
1: their rap, almost like the what the, what they were doing in the, in the NFL with the, the, the Super Bowl rap or whatever that was. So yep. Yep. you can be grateful. They didn't include you in that. You know, he's somebody that I, you know, I actually reached out to him when I was doing the chic book because he had been uh, a wrestling fan too. And he had grown up in the area, in the actual Detroit area. And so I thought to myself, well, he had to remember the chic, you know, and that went nowhere, but, I never heard back, but I but I feel like he he's an example of somebody who he's got great insights on the business and instincts and things. And, and it's interesting to hear his thoughts and opinions on things. But there is so much of his personality that rubs people the wrong way and can be so abrasive and so arrogant sometimes. And so it's couched
0: in all of that. So it, I agree with you. I agree with you. I do like listening to uh, to his perspectives um, on things you know there's there's no doubt about it but um yeah but just just certain people uh don't um don't gel
1: yeah well we had we had a convention uh uh we ran into each other at a convention a few years back is that is, is it okay to mention that story
0: oh you and i yes you and i sure absolutely Which I'm so I've already apologized for it, but yes, like we can we can get there.
1: And I don't even think there was anything to apologize for, but I but I just think it's it's an interesting connection because um you know the first time we ever spoke was when I was working on my first book, which was WWE Legends. And again, I I think it's a funny thing because I think sometimes people don't people gave the WWE office way too much credit and thinking that. The left hand always knew what the right hand was doing, and that sort of thing. And it wasn't always as organized as people thought. Like I remember, I I interviewed Randy Savage by telephone in the years when he was persona non grata in that company. For by far, you know, someone they wouldn't touch at all. And he was amazed that I was on the phone with him. And he kept asking me, does does Vince know that you called me? And and the main reasons were two. One, I had no idea that we weren't supposed to talk to him. Not not the slightest clue at all. And two, um, they really didn't know what we were doing most of the time. And we just sort of went half-cocked on our own ideas. And so I think when I approached you to interview you for WWE Legends, the first thing you asked me was what was it that if Bruno was going to be in the book, right? The, the only thing I got that right. The, the only thing. And I honestly didn't know the answer because I didn't know if they were going to let me put Bruno in the book. And so I gave you the most honest answer. of Well, I don't know. But what I meant by that was, I hope so, but, but we'll see,
0: you know, <laughs> but you didn't say that. Right. I didn't say that. No, I didn't. You said, um, you, uh say it again the, the first thing that you just said the, i said well you asked me you know uh, I'll, is bruno going to be included in the book yeah right it, just just to put context to this this was when bruno and vinnie were at each other's throats right publicly right. publicly so yes so you're writing about the history of wwf wwe and and i said is will bruno be included in the book oh and you said i don't know and I said, then I'm not interested that's because right. in my in my mind, if you don't know whether you're going to include Sam Martino in uh-huh. the history, then really, I have nowhere to go with that. Then I don't want to be part of that,
1: well, that project. You, you were right to say that, honestly, and that's why I didn't and I didn't pursue it any further than that.
0: Yeah, but I could I could have been more gentlemanly or it.
1: Well, I'm I'm very that's why I'm very glad that we actually got to talk about it again. It's the last thing I ever expected in my life was that that would ever happen. Because you know, I I felt like I shouldn't have even I shouldn't have even done that because especially from reading reading your book, which I had read at that point, um, and that's how I knew that you would have had great memories of of these people, you know. I, I would never have wanted to come across as a representative of a company that didn't, in my opinion, treat you the right way. So, so, so what, you know, of course you wouldn't want to give me the time of day. I mean, it you know, it, it, it makes perfect sense to me when I look back on it now as a, as a much more mature adult. And I'm incredibly glad that we actually
0: had a chance to talk about it. I'm, you know, I, I'm uh, grateful but perplexed as to why WWE has included me in all four editions of the encyclopedia. Um, I I really appreciate them doing that. Um, Yeah, but it, it, it surprises me. They've actually done a surprisingly good job of that sort
1: of thing in more recent years. Uh, I don't know if it's just Vince getting older or the company getting bigger. So There's not, you know, we always used to joke that Vince, you know, WWE is the only corporation where the chairman of the board is approving of t-shirt designs and baseball caps and things. And I think there's a lot less of that that goes on. So there's a lot less of the fingerprints of Vince on every little thing as there used to be in, in the past, which is a good thing, I think, for reasons like that, that you don't have everything, every decision being made based on the personal whims
0: or grudges of one person, you know? Yeah, I I, I agree with that. But I think you could also say, though, that the people that are making the decisions wouldn't know of my importance or lack thereof of my, in my participation with the promotion. That's
1: true. But I, I like to think, maybe I'm an optimist, that the fact that they included you is proof that they have some awareness of, 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 of your contribution. They, I think they would, they would have to, or they're listening to the right people. Cause I know some of the people that worked on those books, I would have loved to have been asked, but I was not, are people who genuinely really do love wrestling and are historians and are people that I respect. So I can perfectly imagine that these were the people who were saying, Hey, here's the people who need to be in this book. And thankfully they didn't get, you know, the kind of pushback they might have got in years past. I don't even know how I got my book done. I mean, for people that don't know, my book was called WWE Legends, and it was focused on, uh, basically, the idea was the WWF stars from before the national expansion. That was my idea. The people who had made their name prior to that. And I thought in my head, why in the world would they even let me do this book? I'm going to cross my fingers and hold my breath. And again it just kind of went under the radar and I had Bruno in there and I had all the people you would never imagine. They were all in there and it just flew totally under the radar with me thinking every step of the way that somebody is going to take a look at this thing and go, why are we doing this book? And and it never happened. It never, the only thing that happened, this has to do with gorilla. The only change that was ever made was I had a picture on the cover of gorilla Monsoon in his wrestling incarnation because that was the era that this book covered and apparently i guess on the final approval stage it went to stephanie mcmahon's desk not vince but stephanie for some reason and she looked at it and she goes well why do we have a picture of gorilla like that we should have a picture of him with bobby the brain heenan when they were announcing together because that's how most people know him which she's not wrong about but again it had nothing to do with what the book was about but I did not fight it. I didn't raise a single word because I was so thankful that that was the only critique. And the book somehow got out one way or another. Brian, how many books have you written? Oh, boy. Uh, well, the chic book, the, the Gorilla Monsoon book, when it comes out, will be my sixth book overall. Okay.
0: And four of them, four of the six on wrestling. You, you can imagine um, how I, I, I cannot wait for the monsoon book to come out. Well, I'm, I'm just glad to hear you say that because like
1: I, I felt this way about all the books I do, but especially with this one, it's important to me to win over the trust and the faith of the people that are participating in it, or that I'm talking to and interviewing that, you know, cause I think there's always this knee jerk reaction that everything is going to be exploitative. And even with the chic book, he had look. He had a much more sordid life than Gino did. There's a lot more. There were a lot more skeletons in the closet. He had, he had. he had enemies, whereas I don't think Gino had a single one. And even with that book, I, I, it was very important to me to win the respect of people to say, well, look, he handled even those things in the best, most respectful way, most fair way possible. So that's all I'm trying to do with these books is really uh, preserve the legacy of these people and and present them in the most fair light possible. Because even somebody like Gorilla Monsoon, WWE does nothing with his name these days. Absolutely nothing. I was surprised they didn't do an A&E biography, nothing like that. And so it's important to me to kind of keep it alive in the best way. So when I hear from people like you that say that, it gives me hope that I'm doing the right thing. (laughs)
0: Well, having, having gotten to know you, um, the, the amount that I, that I do know you, um, yeah, I I mean, I trust you. I, I, we, you and I spoke probably for close to two hours, I would say. Um, and I, I wouldn't have done that if I had any suspicion that there was anything underhanded going on and, uh, no, and there's not. So I I look forward to the book.
1: Thank you. And, and I'm glad too, that I've got the, you know, I'm, I've been participating with the family, uh, with Valerie, Gorilla's daughter, and with Maureen, Gorilla's wife, who is thankfully still very much with us and very much with it and sharp as a tack and had great stories and memories and things. So She
0: always treated me very well.
1: Yes, that's actually one of my favorite stories of yours in the book of the, of the night where Gino kind of dragged you to this post-show party at a restaurant and you felt so out of place because it's all these big shots and things and the wrestlers just kind of keeping to themselves. And she was the one who sort of beckoned you over and made you feel comfortable.
0: Yeah. It, well, there other than Bob Backlund, there were no wrestlers, it was all management. Right, I, I was, right. I was chauffeuring uh, Willie Gilsenberg. And um, it seems that after the garden shows, um, Vince senior would host his management team at Jimmy Weston's. Which was a club on the Upper East Side, I think mob mob connected, but I'm not sure. It felt not like surprising, it. not surprising. It, it felt like it, <laughs> and I mean, I walked in um, out of my element. You know, it was just because I was, um, I was getting Willie Gilsenberg, you know, from place to place, and um, and Maureen saw that I was. She could see how uncomfortable I was. I didn't know whether I was allowed to. It was a long table and um, I didn't know whether I was allowed to sit at the table. If I was going to sit at the table, where was I going to sit at the table? And she, you know, she read my discomfort and and, and called me over and I sat with her and, and Monsoon.
1: That's great. That's really great. And, and actually I should mention that too. I mentioned it at the beginning for people I, and the book is now what, 20 years old, something like
0: that. Uh, yeah, 23 years old First and came out, the, the self-published edition Came out in 2000
1: And you can absolutely still find copies of it So I encourage people to do that It's called Body Slams, Memoirs of a Wrestling Pitchman And uh, it's really, and like I said at the beginning It was one of the books, for me anyway In the very beginning of this wrestling book craze That really kind of set the tone And set the trend for what these kind of books could be and it was also from ECW Press. So people can look that up. What are some other ways that people can find you or the, the things that you are working on these days? What's the best way for people to do that?
0: Um, I'm on uh, X or Twitter at Gary Capetta and um, Facebook. Facebook is 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 the hub where, um, I believe it or not, I have over 4 million. Uh, it reaches uh, more than 4 million a month um, I, I, think I'm very grateful for that. I think that's, um, uh, it's amazing to me at least. Um, and that is, um, GMC four, the number four real. So it's facebook.com slash GMC for real. And I'm also on um, Instagram.
1: Okay. And I'll be sure to share all that stuff too. When the, when the episodes posted, we have a Facebook group. It does not reach millions of people a month but it does have a following and I'll put it in there as well and and Gary I can't thank you enough for doing this it has been a pleasure enlightening and informative and just as I hoped it would be
0: thank you I I appreciate it and and I appreciate your audience I know who your audience is and uh, they've been my buddies for long long time oh that's great I'm sure they're gonna love this
1: There you have it, folks, my conversation with Gary Michael Capetta. Gary, I can't thank you enough for coming to Shut Up and Wrestle to talk about your unique and memorable career and your insights on the business of pro wrestling and on the business of ring announcing. And I hope that you all enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. And I also hope that you're going to keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle I'll give you a little peek ahead. Next week's episode, episode 91, we are going to have Jamie Hemmings, best known for her work on the truly, truly great and impressive and long-lasting pro wrestling website, Slam Wrestling. Jamie will be here as my guest next week, episode 91. In the weeks to come, I also plan to have the return of UK wrestling historian Bradley Craig. That's going to be a great one, as well as Andrew Wilson, former creative director of WWE and a fellow veteran of the Titan Tower Wars, just like myself. So I know you guys like those kind of convos. So stick around for that one. Many more to come. I'm working on another from the archives interview. I'm not going to reveal yet who it will be with, but I've got another one kind of queued up for the weeks to come. We are barreling ahead towards episode 100. Who's it going to be? Well, you're just going to have to keep listening to find out. I've got some plans in the works. But having said that, where are the places that you can find this great website? Well, I'm glad that you asked me, dear listener. There is our website, suawpod.com. There are also all the usual places where people find podcasts, such as Podcast Addict, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, which is usually where I listen to my podcasts, be that as it may. Also, if you have a chance, join the Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. We are 1100 and growing stronger and bigger every day. Come join us. Also, if you are interested in checking out some of the other projects that I work on, The Wrestling News from Arcadian Vanguard, I am The Wrestling News News Director, and so I proudly encourage you to check that out every morning at the wrestlingnews.com or at the Arcadian Vanguard YouTube page. You can find it there as well. My books, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, as well as superheroes, the history of a pop culture phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro, are available now wherever books are sold. I also have autographed copies if you'd be interested in one of those reach out to me at brian solomon at yahoo.com. The magazines that I write for, Inside the Ropes magazine, you can get at insidetheropesmagazine.com. Pro Wrestling Illustrated, you can get at pwi-online.com. The December issue, the PWI 500 issue, is on sale now. And our next one coming up in a couple of weeks is going to be the January 2024 issue, believe it or not, with the women's 250 on the cover. I know who came in number one and you don't. So keep an eye out for that one on newsstands or wherever the hell you find magazines these days. If you're looking for me on social media, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. Find me on Facebook. My author page on there is Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my website out there on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon, asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and saying you can lead a horse to water, but a pencil must be led. So long, wrestling fans.